right, Acts chapter number nine tonight, if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter number nine, as you stand, we'll read just a few pass, just a few verses, and uh, I love reading biographies of people. I've, when I first got saved, I read biographies of preachers. I was encouraged to do that. I remember reading one by Lester Roloff called Living by Faith. It was one of my favorite ones, and you'd read, read about guys like Oliver B. Green and and, and uh, different uh, for Lee Robertson, different guys like that, just some of the old time preachers. And, and uh, I'd look at those guys and I'd think, man, they are like the cream of the crop type of guys. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're the, they are like the epitome of what you want to reach as a preacher boy. You know what I'm saying? As a preacher, as a pastor, you look at ministries like that. You look at a ministry like Southwest Baptist Church. You look at a, at a Dave Hardy or a Sam Davison or a, or a Pastor Gaddis in, in my eyes. And you look at, you look at, People like that, and you think, boy, they have reached where I would love to reach as a pastor or as an individual in my Christian walk. And I know humility, they would, in humility, they would never uh, say that about themselves. But, and I look at lives like that, and I look, about, I look at even people that who've written the Bible, like um, the Apostle Paul, who we're going to talk about tonight. And when I say written the Bible, I meant by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, okay? I understand he was a tool to be used to write God's Word. But Paul was an, was an unbelievable individual in the New Testament. And I look at the life of the Apostle Paul, and why wouldn't I admire a guy like that? He's the greatest missionary that's, that's debatably ever lived and, and started so many churches. And man, here I am a missionary in Germany. I see Brother Trimble back here tonight, missionary to the Philippines. We look at guys like this and we think, man, these guys are it. We go to the history of, of missions and we, we read about them. Brother Hainline, I was just thinking about that the other day in the books we read and the history of missions and missionaries and guys who trailblazed a path for, for, for world missions. I thought, boy, those guys, something special about them. Look at the Apostle Paul, there's something special about him. But you know what I love about biographies is they don't tell you all the successes. They, they like to bring you back to the humble beginnings. And I think if we're going to if we're going to be honest about a guy like the Apostle Paul tonight, who we're going to read about, who in our text he's actually referred to as Saul, they're going to have to go back to where Saul or the Apostle Paul started, and see what was so significant about the beginning of Paul. What was so significant about the beginnings of Paul that made him such such a success in his ministry, that made him so effective in worldwide evangelism. That made him uh, be able to say these words, I fought a good fight, I finished my course, I kept the faith. How could he say words like that? Well, let's go back to where he started. Acts chapter number nine tonight. I'm gonna read just a few verses and we're gonna go back to verse number one and, and uh, go through the text here tonight. I want you to see some things I think are significant for us and ask God to use it. In verse number one, the Bible says, and Saul, now don't, don't get it mixed up, we're talking about Paul here, but this is pre pre-salvation, this is his given name, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, 
Why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? A very interesting question. Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And look at verse number six. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. Go back to verse number five. Verse number four, rather, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? Now, I want to give you the title of the message tonight in the form of a question. I don't normally do that. But I want to ask this question tonight, and, and, and Lord willing, it'll bear out here towards the end of the message. But I want to ask you this question. Who has ownership of your life? Who has the ownership of your life? And I believe you'll see here the vital piece of the puzzle that makes the Apostle Paul who he was and who he is and the ministry and the things that he was able to accomplish for the Lord in the gospel happens right here in Acts chapter number nine. And I believe it'll be vital for each of us as we consider world missions, as we consider getting the gospel, not just here in our Jerusalem, but across the street and around the world. We have to consider what's here tonight. Father, I pray that you'd bless the reading of your word. And God, I pray that you'd help us as your word is preached. God, that your spirit would speak to us. Lord, we so desperately need that. Lord, I pray that you'd use me as your mouthpiece. Give me unction to preach tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Can I drink some of this? Is that okay? Oh boy, that's a blessing. Now we're primed up and ready to go. I want you to see just right here in verse number one immediately. I love how the Bible paints, uh, uses descriptive words to paint pictures. And boy, and I think it's, I think it's significant here as we consider the text tonight in, in, in Acts chapter number nine. And Saul, now you're going to have to help me now because I have a vivid imagination, okay? And I'm going to blame it on being a bus kid. I'm going to blame it on I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And uh, so that kind of gives me a little bit of a cushion and cover for what I'm fixing to say, okay? So just be, it's nothing bad. Don't worry. Good night. Some of you people out there, you're like, what's he going to say? You know? And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is a fire-breathing dragon. I just picture a fire-breathing dragon. Can you, I know it's a mystical creature, but can you consider for me just for a second what, if, what, what, is, what all encompasses with a fire-breathing dragon? I mean, number one, he's big and ugly, and it's a creature of, of power, breathing out fire. Usually what comes with a fire-breathing dragon is destruction and death, turmoil, fear, and I believe, the, now I know the Bible's not describing Paul as a fire-breathing dragon, but it's using words of description here to paint a picture of a man who is a man of great authority, a man who is to be feared. I, I, we, we understand if we study the life of Paul that he was a very educated man. In fact, 
for his age and the, and the time of life he was, I believe he was educated with wisdom way beyond his years. And he just was around the right people who, who, who taught him the law, and I believe he was a, I believe he understood the law very well. And he was a man of power. One commentator said that he was like, that the Apostle Paul was like five foot three or five foot four. That, and that's funny to me, okay? Because the words used here to describe Paul, I think of maybe like Goliath, you know what I'm saying? Where he's a big, big, big man and, and one to be feared, maybe like a bodybuilder looking guy, you know, comes in and does, takes care of business like a, like a bouncer or something. But if he's five foot three and five foot four, he's got little man syndrome. I think about this puny guy who walks in with his chest puffed out and he's got this entourage behind him, you know, his, guy, his, his, his goons behind him and he's walking out with his chest puffed out because he's a man of authority. He's somebody, now listen, if you're five foot three or four and you're, I'm sorry, I wasn't making fun of you. I was just thinking it's funny that Paul may have been that short, you know, I'm five foot six. That's, I mean, he's a little guy and uh, we don't know if he was actually that tall, but that's what that guy said. So take it for what it's worth. But the Bible says, he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He was a man to be feared. He was a man on a mission. I like to describe this as the, the posture of, of Saul. It, it describes his posture. It describes uh, the type of man he was. Feared man, a man of authority, a man of great power, a man, when he came into town, when it, when it was concerning the people of God, when he came into town, he was a man that, that, that you tried to avoid at all costs. If you were a follower of Jesus Christ uh, and you heard that Saul, the accuser, the persecutor, was coming to find Christians, that he was the one that you wanted to stay far, far, far away from. Why? Because everywhere that Saul, when it, when it came to the people of God, came threatenings and slaughter and death and examples. That's the kind of guy we're dealing with here. You say, not the great apostle Paul, not the one who started all of the churches, not the one who went on all the missionary journeys, not the one who wrote our New Testament. I mean, look at all the things he did. Yeah, but look where he started. We have to consider where he started. And he went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, those letters were just basically authoritative papers given Saul the authority to carry out the business he was fixing to carry out. And he was gonna go into the worship places of the, of the Jews and he was to find any of this way. Now, if you, have, if you mark in your Bible, I want you to circle that, put out to the side there. You can put a number of things, but I like to put the church. I like to put followers of Jesus Christ if, if Saul was to find anybody who proclaimed the name of Jesus, who followed the gospel of Jesus Christ, his sole duty, according to the letters that he had, his authority that he had, was to silence that gospel, was to silence that people, was to literally snuff out the name of Jesus. They didn't want anything to do with it. I don't know if you understand this, but one of the biggest problems that that the Pharisees and the people of that day had with Jesus was they never would make the connection that Jesus was God. They didn't want to accept that. They believed in, in God of the Old Testament of the law and the Pharisees believed in, and maybe even taught that and preached that. Of course, they did it for their benefit and they went extra biblical with those sayings. But, but when Jesus came on the scene and started in teaching and preaching the things that he was doing, they didn't want to accept that 
that this man is not just any other man. He is indeed uh, what John chapter one, verse one said, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. They didn't want to believe that he was God. So you have to understand that when Saul is doing the things he's doing, I personally believe he was doing it in sincerity. He thought he was actually doing the work of God. He thought by snuffing out the name of Jesus because Jesus was a blasphemer, according to them, that he was doing the right work of God. You say, how do you know that? We'll get into the passage here in just a second. I'll show you why I personally believe that. But if he was to find any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. For what reason? Well, if you go back to number one, verse number one, you'll see to threaten them, to accuse them, to slaughter them. Can you imagine tonight somebody busting out the back doors of, of the auditorium? They've already taken out all the security and they've busted out the back doors. They've got the papers. They've got the authority behind them and they're gathering up anybody who wants to stand and have the courage to say that I'm a Bible-believing, God-following, gospel-accepting Christian. Come with us. And they line you up right down this middle aisle and they put handcuffs or some kind of constraints on your hand. And they walk you downtown in front of everybody where everybody can see as a spectacle and they, and they abuse you and they accuse you just as we heard in Sunday school this morning as, as that, those Christians there in India were, 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 were molested and accused and, and beaten out in the streets. That, that was exactly what Saul was commissioned to do. Imagine it happening here tonight. And he comes in here, man of authority. Boy, I, this Saul was not anybody to play around with. Saul was not anybody to think that, no, oh, he's just all talk. No, he is the real deal. He had real zeal for what he was doing. But I love this. Uh, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's on his way to Damascus, verse number three, and... And as he journeyed, on his way, on his mission, on, I mean, I just feel like he's high-stepping it, like, boy, I'm fixing to get them. Suddenly, there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, and I want to help you tonight, I joke about this, but you'd be surprised how many people believe these things, and especially in the, the context of the type of church uh, and ministry that we're involved in, that that I would say probably 95% of the people who attend Grace Baptist Church in Launstuhl, Germany have never, ever, ever stepped foot in an independent Baptist church until now. I didn't realize that until we started preaching on Baptist distinctives. Boy, was I surprised at all the questions and all the misunderstandings and all and how long it was going to take us to slowly have to walk through the scriptures and go all the way back to the beginning on some things and trying to explain some things to realize that these folks have no idea what we're talking about. So when I make this statement, understand that there are beliefs out there that believe that if you walk outside tonight and you see a bright light and somebody starts speaking from the sky, it must be Jesus. It's not. 
No, you had too much pasta for lunch or you didn't get a good nap and during your independent Baptist nap time. No, we have the full counsel of the word of God now. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We don't need an audible voice. We have the Holy Spirit to speak to us and speak to our heart as the words preached. But in this case, they didn't have the full counsel of God's word. So indeed, Jesus was speaking to Saul. Now, I need you to understand this. Saul did not know that it was Jesus that was speaking to him. Not at first. Not at first. Look at this. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth. Notice his posture change. He went from verse number one being a man of great authority, maybe one who's puffed up, to now falling to the earth. That's significant. We'll get to that in just a second. He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? Now, I'm thankful that Jesus, you know, Saul was out to persecute the people of God and the church of God. I'm so glad that Jesus associates himself with his people. I'm so glad that Jesus takes it personal when the people of God are persecuted. If we could gather any kind of encouragement tonight about this passage of scripture, it's this, that, that Jesus cares for his people. The shepherd cares for his sheep. He, and the, the persecution to the church and the persecution to the people of God does not go unnoticed. In fact, Jesus takes it personal because he told Saul, why persecutest thou me? He, tying himself directly to the people of God. I love that and I'm thankful for that. In verse five, and he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus who thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, I want you to have your Bibles handy because we're gonna go to Psalm chapter 110 to look at one verse real quick. And, and I want you to see this. I think it's important that we understand the terminology here that Paul, Paul's using or Saul's using. Now, we have to understand there's two different languages being used between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think we get that. But there's a distinction made here in Psalm 110 that I want us to see. As I was doing a study, we were in between sermon series at our church, and we were doing just a, a few weeks of different names of God. We were in Psalm chapter 110, and and I want you to see this. In your King James Bible, the Bible says this in verse number one, the Lord should be in all caps. That, that signifies to the reader that we're talking about a specific name used to describe a specific characteristic of God. Now I want you to understand, we're not talking about multiple gods, but we're talking about a name used by the writer to specify a specific characteristic about God. In this case, they're talking about Jehovah. The Lord. What does that word Jehovah mean? That word Jehovah simply means this, one who's self-existent, the one who always has been, the one who always will be, one who's not reliant on the, on the strength of somebody else to exist. He always has, always will exist. He's Jehovah, he's God. So when the reader comes across this and they see that, that the psalmist is talking about Jehovah, you could, you could kind of read it like this, the self-existent one. The Lord, the Jehovah. 
Look at this, said unto my Lord. Now, in this word, it's only capitalized at, with the L. This is the word Adonai. Another name used to describe God, not a different God, same God, used to describe God. It simply means this, master. Another one I like about that is this, one who has ownership. One who has ownership. All right, so turn to Acts chapter number two. Just follow me here. We'll, we'll get right back to the past, right back to the text. I just want you to see this. In Acts chapter number two, Luke is, is, is referencing Psalm 110. Verbatim. And I want you to see the word he uses here. Verse number 34, for David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith, saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Who is the Adonai that they're talking about? Well, the psalmist is talking about or referencing one that he has not yet met, but one that will come, the Messiah, the one that's going to sit at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ. Luke is referencing that in Acts chapter number two, for David is not ascended to heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord, Jehovah. Now, it's the same word in the New Testament, the word kurios, kind of a general term used to, de to describe one, and it means this, master. Master, it's written in such a way that we understand they're talking about Jehovah and then Adonai. The Lord said unto my Lord, Jesus, sit thou at my right hand. Go back to Acts chapter number nine. And I want you to see this. Paul uses the same word. Who art thou? Lord. Amen. Curios. I don't believe Paul was referencing Jesus, because of the way he responds to how Jesus introduces himself here. I do believe that Saul was referencing something divine and bigger than him. That's why he said, who art thou master? I mean, listen, if a, if a light shines round about you and, and a voice comes from heaven and speaks your name in the, in the New Testament, not today, in the New Testament here, when they don't have the full counsel word of God, I think that there'd be some fear. You'd fall to your face. You'd say, who art thou, Lord? I'm in the presence of something much bigger than me. Master. And he says, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I struggled with that for a, long, for a, for a while to know exactly what the scripture was talking about here. Uh, was he talking about the pricks of his heart? Was he talking about the pricks of conviction of the Holy Spirit? I believe it's all the above. In fact, I think it goes even further than that, but maybe the witness of ones that, that Saul himself observed giving the gospel and living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't help but see this passage right here when he says it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks and not think about Stephen as he preached the gospel and saw a man of authority, a man of, 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 uh, who was greatly feared, who, who breathed out threatenings and slaughter. 
held the coats of those. What was he doing? He was giving off his stamp of authority, holding the coats for those men as they took up stones to silence the man of God, to silence the gospel, to silence Jesus. I believe that's the pricks that Paul was experiencing day in and day out as he witnessed the preaching of the great man of God, Stephen, as he saw the disciples of Christ continue to give the gospel and all of those that he had martyred and all of those that he threatened and all those that he'd persecuted. It was just finally coming to an end and Jesus said, it's hard for you. It's hard for you to resist the conviction and the witness of my gospel of my people. It's a Sunday night, Midsummer Missions. Maybe you're here tonight. You say, yeah, I believe God. I believe in God. There's a whole lot of people who believe in God or believe in a God, but they don't know him. And you may be in here tonight. You've made a profession of faith, but you don't know God. You call him Lord and Master. You, you, you recognize that there is a divine out there, but, but, but he's not yours. He's not your Master. He's not your Lord. He's not your Adonai. And every time that you hear the gospel preached and every time you come across that believer at work or that, that friend who knows the Lord, or every time that the Bible's open, it just pricks and it pricks and it pricks and it's hard and it's hard and it's hard and it, and it gets harder every time when the Bible's open to, to withstand that conviction, that, that, that pricking your heart that says, you don't know me. Maybe you're here tonight and you need to know Jesus as your Savior. Boy, can I just help you? How did Paul become how did Paul become the man he was? What well, started at salvation, obviously. He was a grown man up at this point, but he didn't yet started living. What do you mean? Well, Romans chapter six says this that we were dead in our trespasses and in our, in our sins, and we were that we were bound by our sin. But but thank God, Romans chapter eight, we were quickened, we were given liberty, we were set free from that bondage of sin. When when did that take place? That took place at salvation. That took place when He became the Lord and Master of our life. And maybe tonight you need to come down. You need to let somebody take a Bible and you, you need to accept, not just accept, you need to recognize and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord, your master. Who art thou, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now I want you to notice something here in verse number six. We're almost done here. Notice the posture change again. More descriptive words that describe Saul here. First, we have a man who's a man of great authority and power and ruthless. Now we have a man on his face in fear. And look what the Bible says in verse number six. And he trembling and astonished. You ever, you ever had a near, I would call him a near miss, I remember when I worked for Elaine Hunt Correctional Center in Louisiana, it was a state penitentiary, and we were doing rifle, we were doing qualifications for our Mini 14. That was a really cool gun, or rifle rather, excuse me. And I remember this young lady, she probably was only 18 years old, fresh out of high school. She had really thick 
winter gloves on. And, and that instructor told us that you don't ever have your finger inside the trigger hole, near the trigger until you're ready to fire. And she had that, the butt of that weapon uh, sitting on her leg like this with her hand in, uh, wrapped around the neck and had her finger inside the trigger hole. No safety on that. And she's talking to the person next to her like this. And I'm standing back here observing, like, what are you doing? And some of us yelled at her. And she slings over and talks to the person like this. And she slings over, talks like this. And then she did a whole spin around. And when she did that, this guy was standing right next to her, had a rifle in his hand. And this is what it did. Boom. A live round inches from his face. That's what I would call a near miss. In instances like that, you probably feel every single bit of blood in your body feel like it's flowing out at your feet because you almost killed somebody. And you tremble and you fear. That's the only way that I know how to describe maybe what the trembling in astonishment, Saul was facing right now when he is face to face with Jesus. Remember the one, the master, the God, he thought he was rightfully serving. He come to find out was the one he was working against. he trembling and astonished look how he references him now same word but now he knows who he's talking to Lord what will thou have me to do I think it meant something different that time when he said Lord than it did in verse number 5 when he said who art thou Lord one who's divine one who I think I know but I don't really know and then Jesus said I am Jesus Saul, I need you to make the connection here that the one that you're persecuting is the God that you claim to serve. But because of your pride, you can't see that. No, no, no. It took, it took Saul having to get to the earth and get to a stage of humility before he recognized Jesus as his master, as one who had ownership of his life. I like to remind people of this, that not a single person comes to Jesus Christ in pride and arrogancy. Not a one. How are you going to get to Jesus? If, if you're here tonight, you say, I need to know how to get to Jesus. Well, I'm going to tell you the first step, you're going to have to humble yourself. You have to put your pride aside and what you think is right. And you have to reconcile that the truth of God and what you think is right, that there's something different there. And the fact is this, that you're wrong, God is right. And it's going to require you to humble yourself so that you can get to God so that you can recognize that he is Lord and he is master and he is the owner of your life. Now I want you to understand this. Saul did not make Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now I want you to understand this, okay? Because I think uh, there's a fine line here that we need to understand that, that Jesus is 
king of kings and lord of lords, he had already, he had already paid the price for Saul. But what happens here is this, that Saul needed to recognize that he was Lord and then Saul needed to relinquish the ownership of his life and turn it over to Jesus. Some of you are here tonight and you've been born again. You've been saved and when that title of your life was signed by Jesus, you snatched it up from him and said, thank you Jesus for saving me, but I'm gonna hold on to the title for a while. I'm not ready to relinquish my, the ownership of my life over to Jesus yet. Now, I'm not ready to give him ownership of my life yet. I've got things I wanna accomplish. I've got places I wanna go. I've got things that I think I can do in my own strength. How, how are we gonna reach a world for missions? How are we gonna reach the world with the gospel? How are we gonna continue at Heartland Baptist Bible College to train young men and women to go out into the world and to preach the gospel and teach the gospel and live godly lives and to turn over and make more Christians and more Christians and more Christians and more workers? It's gonna require somebody to humble themselves and relinquish ownership of their life over to Jesus and say, hey, Lord, Lord, Master, owner of my life, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? Does he have ownership of your life? Well, Pat, Brother Rob, I've been saved. Praise the Lord for that. He is Lord. He is Lord, that doesn't change anything, but does he sit on the throne of your life? Is he Lord of your life? Does he dictate the career you have? Does he have a say on how you raise your children? Does he have a say, young person, on the relationship that you want to be involved in? Does he have a say on whether or not you're going to join the military or go out into a career or, or go to a state college or a Bible college? Does Jesus have a say? Because, listen, if he has ownership of your life, then it doesn't matter what or where or how. You just know this. I'm going to do whatever he says to do. We pick on the young people awful lot saying, well, you, you need to follow Jesus, follow Jesus. How about some mom and daddies? who for years called him Lord, 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 as Savior, as my Savior, as my God, but, but you've never relinquished ownership of, of Jesus into your life. You've never given him ownership. Uh, how about some moms and dads who, who when the children leave the nest and you're empty nesters now, I long for that day. I'm just kidding, I love my, I love my children, my son and my daughter, but one day they're gonna be gone. And boy, have I not seen time after time just a, just a 180 turn in the lives of moms and dads who were solid all of these years. And then when the kids are gone, all of a sudden they fall off the deep end. Why? Well, I wonder if Jesus ever had ownership or you were just holding on to the title of your life. You know what made the Apostle Paul so great? Because when he started, he knew 
that his life was not his, but it belonged to Jesus. And he was willing to surrender that over to him. It's not just a knowledge that he is Lord, but it's a willingness on your part to prove it. How do I prove it? By giving your life over to him. I beseech you, therefore, brother, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable Amen. service. Heard a pastor say one time, I love this, what's that word reasonable mean? It literally means this. That's the least we could do. It's the least you and I could do by giving our lives over as a living sacrifice unto him. It's the least you could do if you count the if you consider the cost. Life for a life. Gave his life for you and I at Calvary. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that we might be made the righteousness of God. And we can't even give our life over to him. We want to hold on to it. We want to take it. Say, yeah, you can have me for eternity, but you can't have me in this life. What a shame. And he trembling and astonished, verse 6, Lord, what will thou have me to do? You know what's interesting is, I think a lot of people don't ask the Lord that question because they're afraid he's going to answer you. And can I just guarantee this? When you ask God, what will you have me to do? He will answer you. So if you're out there and you say, I don't know what God wants for me, you keep asking him. And you keep serving him. The answer is coming. He will answer. And for those who are sitting there saying, I don't want to ask him because I know he's going to tell me. How about you surrender your life tonight to him? How about you relinquish ownership over to God? How about you make Jesus the master of your life? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Verse number eight, And Saul arose from the earth. When his eyes were open, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. He did what God told him to do. And then Acts chapter 26, he stands before King Agrippa, giving testimony about this very moment. And, and it gives a little bit more clarity as to what those instructions were. In verse number 15, this is what Paul said. And I said, who art thou, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose. This is the reason. This is the reason you ought to make Jesus the owner of your life. This is the reason you ought to surrender yourself for this reason, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen and of the, and the things in which I will appear unto thee, verse 18, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance amongst them, them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Why was it essential that Paul gave his life to Jesus? Because God had a plan for Saul 
to take the gospel all around the world so that people can go from darkness to light, so they can go from the bondage of sin and Satan to the deliverance of God. Why do you gotta do it tonight? Why is it imperative that we go to camp and we hear preaching and, and we, we pound it in you? Surrender your life, surrender your life. Why? Because there's a people who are in darkness who need the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and God wants to use you and you and you and you and you and you and you to accomplish that purpose, that task. God wants to use Southwest Baptist Church to accomplish the task of the Great Commission. It's not left up to the world. It's not left up to just anybody. It's left up to God's people who will relinquish ownership of their life and say, Lord, what will you have me to do? And maybe you need to come tonight to an altar and say, Lord, I may not be an Apostle Paul. I may not go on great missionary journeys but I can take the good news of Jesus to somebody in darkness. Maybe you need to come tonight and you need to lay the title of your life down at this altar. And you need to call him Lord, not just in a general sense, but recognizing that he's Lord and he ought to be the Lord of your life. And you need to relinquish ownership over to Jesus. I'm talking about from the oldest to the youngest tonight. There's no exception in here. We are all accountable. Who has ownership? Doesn't matter how much he asks you to give during faith promise time if he has ownership. Doesn't matter how far your grandchildren are going to move off to a different country when they say, Mom, Pop, I think God's called me to Kenya or Argentina or Japan. It's not going to much matter if he has ownership of your life. You're going to say praise God and you're going to get behind him. It's not going to matter what your pastor asks of you on a Saturday. Come out and just knock on a few doors. Try to get the gospel to the neighborhoods around here. It's not going to bother you if he has ownership. It's not going to seem like a sacrifice to you if he has ownership. Well, they're asking me to give up my music. They're asking me to live a holy life. That's not going to bother you if Jesus has ownership of your life. And if you're here tonight and just those few things that I've mentioned bother you, then you're the one that the scripture is talking to tonight. You're the one who needs to come down and humble yourself and say, Lord, what would thou have me to do? Here's my life. It's yours. Boy, we could reach this world with the gospel if God's people would just humble themselves and give themselves over to him. Be a wonderful thing. Every head bowed and every eye closed tonight. I really believe the invitation's already kind of been given. If Jesus doesn't have ownership of your life and salvation tonight, you need to be saved and be born again. I challenge you, just come. Let somebody take a Bible. Humble yourself. 
and be saved. Or maybe you're here tonight and God's spoken to your heart and you say, I have been operating my life. I have been holding on to the title of my life and I need to come to an altar and give it over to Jesus. That tonight, when the invitation's given, would you come and do business with God and give him your life? It's not yours. He bought it. He paid for it at Calvary. It's just reasonable for you and I to come back and give it to him and see what he can do with our life. Father, I pray that you bless this invitation. And God, that's your spirit. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of generations who don't know Christ, for the sake of them knowing Jesus, I pray that as your spirit works, that some tonight would come and respond to how you've spoken to us. Lord, I'm so thankful I can call you my Savior. Lord, it's even better when I give you ownership and, and you're the master of my life. I pray that you do a word or this invitation. In Jesus' name I pray.